Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 20, Columbus's First Journey. Before getting started, I've got a couple of things to talk about. First of all, I hope you all had a good Christmas and New Year. I spent the holiday period over with my partner's family in rural Australia. It was an interesting experience. That partly explains the second thing I'd like to say. Basically, I want to apologise for disappearing for so long. I knew the podcast schedule would be disrupted over Christmas, but I'd hoped to get at least one more episode out beforehand. In the end, though, real life took over, and I just had too much to do. I intended to put out a short announcement just to let people know what was going on, but I didn't even get round to that. The third thing is that despite my absence, the podcast has been growing in the time I've been away. I just want to thank everyone who's listened or supported in any way, especially those of you who have been leaving iTunes reviews. They're really nice to read, they make the whole thing feel worthwhile, and they help the podcast grow, so thank you. Okay, with all that out of the way, let's begin. On the 3rd of August 1492, Christopher Columbus set off from the port of Palos de la Frontera in southern Spain, searching for a western sea route to Asia. After years of trying to find someone to finance his journey, he had finally convinced the king and queen of the newly formed Spain. If he succeeded, he would not only bring great riches to himself and Spain, but he would for the first time provide practical physical proof for the theory that the earth was spherical. He took with him three ships, the largest of which, the Santa Maria, he captained himself. The other two, the Pinta and the Nina, were captained by two of the Pinzon brothers, while the third brother also took part in the expedition. The Pinzons were famous seafarers from the town of Palos itself. They had built a reputation for being remarkably talented sailors, and fought ably in the War of Castilian Succession a couple of decades earlier against Portugal. The Santa Maria was a large vessel, and it was owned by Juan de la Cosa, who accompanied Columbus on the expedition. De la Cosa was another excellent seafarer, cartographer and navigator. He would later draw the first known map of the New World. The other two ships were much smaller, and in fact it seems incredible that they made it all the way across the Atlantic. They were designed for sailing on the Mediterranean, not the wide open ocean. Although in good condition, all three ships were relatively old, and were not built specially for the journey. Furthermore, the Pinta was pressed into service against its owner's will by the King and Queen of Spain. The Niña, on the other hand, was owned by Juan Niño, who, like the Pinzons, came from a local sailing family. Juan, his brother, and his extended family would accompany Columbus on all his voyages, and their exploits would make their family famous. Columbus's route included stopping over in the Canary Islands. As you'll probably know, these belong to Spain at this point, and they're located just off the coast of Morocco. It was not to be a smooth start, however, and the problems began before they even reached the Canaries. Three days after setting off, the rudder of the Pinta broke, and Columbus wrote in his journal that it was only the excellent seamanship of Martin Pinzon that allowed them to reach the islands. Pinzon is said to have speculated that this may have been a result of sabotage by the unwilling owner of the ship, perhaps a way of avoiding having to undertake the great voyage. The next day they reached the Canary Islands, 
and decided to stop at Gomera. Here they discussed what to do with the damaged Pinta, and considered leaving her behind while searching for a new boat. They decided, however, to take the Pinta to the most populated island in the archipelago, Gran Canaria, and here they would get it repaired. While they waited, they witnessed a volcanic eruption on the nearby island of Tenerife. A couple of days later, as they prepared to continue their journey, rumours reached them suggesting that Portuguese ships had been spotted nearby. It was speculated that these may have been attempting to kidnap Columbus in order to stop his explorations taking place. As we learnt over the last few episodes, the Portuguese and the Spanish were locked in a great rivalry over exploration, and the Portuguese king had already turned Columbus down. Perhaps they were having second thoughts. Despite the rumours, the Portuguese ships were never sighted by the expedition itself, however, and they continued on their way once the Pinta was repaired. It took ten weeks to cross the Atlantic, and during this time, not much of note happened. Despite this portion of the voyage being an epic journey into the unknown, there weren't really many specific events that I can relate to you. On Thursday, the 11th of October, land was sighted. Of course, we now know that the Vikings reached North America centuries before Columbus, but ignoring that, it was a man named Rodrigo de Triana who can claim to be the first European to lay eyes on the New World. Triana was aboard the Pinta, which had gone ahead as its smaller size made it faster and more manoeuvrable. It must be noted, however, that the night before, Columbus had claimed to have seen a light in the distance. Thanks to this, he himself claimed to be the first to see land. Being the first came with a lifetime pension offered by the king and queen, which, when he returned, Columbus received. The truth of his claim is unknown, but I'm sure that Triana was not happy about it. Between them, they had discovered what is today the Bahamas. The exact island that they discovered is debated. There are many small islands in the region, making it difficult to say exactly which one they'd found. Columbus, however, named it San Salvador, the saviour. The island was inhabited by Taino people, and the journal Columbus wrote describes how they saw naked islanders observing them from the beach. Columbus went ashore, accompanied by the Pinzon brothers, amongst others, bringing along the royal standard with the initials of Ferdinand and Isabella, topped with crowns. He promptly claimed the islands for Spain, while the natives gathered to examine these strange new arrivals. Columbus is said to have given them beads and hats, saying to his crew that they would be better off converting them to Christianity through kindness than force. The natives then accompanied them back to their boats, and brought with them parrots and other things as gifts. The promises of kindness and the exchanging of gifts did not stop Columbus from taking six of the locals with him as a gift to King Ferdinand. It seems unlikely that they had much choice in the matter. The Spanish also made it a priority to determine if there was any gold to be found in these new lands, and the natives told them that there were larger islands nearby where a king decorated himself with gold jewellery. Still believing that they'd reached Asia, Columbus decided to seek out these islands, thinking that one of them might be the island of Japan, described by Marco Polo as being full of gold and precious stones. They spent the next few days sailing around the islands of the Bahamas, claiming each one for Spain as they went. Along the way, some of the captured natives escaped. Despite this, Columbus ordered that all the locals they met 
were to be treated well, and they continued to trade with them. Eventually, they reached the place where the king with the gold was said to live, but after failing to find him, they gave up. They then sailed south, where they discovered the island of Cuba. Columbus describes the people here as being similar to those he'd previously encountered, speaking a similar language and having a similar culture. He does, however, say that these people were more advanced, living in larger villages and clothing themselves to a certain extent. Again, he was disappointed by the lack of gold in possession of the locals. Still believing that he was in Asia, Columbus sailed around the coast of Cuba, looking for the city of Cathay. After talking to his captured Tainos, he came to the conclusion that the local chief was at war with the Grand Khan, the Chinese emperor, and therefore he must be near. Of course, there was some sort of serious misunderstanding going on here. Cathay is an old name for China, so not a city, and he was of course nowhere near it. He was growing puzzled, however, that all the people he encountered seemed to live in small, simple societies. He was expecting to find great cities, organised states and powerful rulers, as described by the previous adventurers in Asia, such as Marco Polo. He decided to send two Spaniards off into the interior, along with two of his captured natives, in order to track down the local ruler. He instructed them to return in six days. In the meantime, he continued to talk to the native Cubans, and to his excitement discovered what he thought was cinnamon, one of the expensive spices that they were searching for. After a few days, the Spaniards returned, having found no trace of gold or large cities. They did, however, report witnessing the locals with half-burnt herbs in their hands. It's thought that these were the first Europeans to encounter tobacco. Columbus proceeded to take some more locals prisoner, and sailed off in search of an island the locals called Barbique, which was the latest place believed to have gold. Again, however, he was soon disappointed. Now, at this point, Martin Pinzon took the pinter and split off from Columbus. He had a native aboard his ship who he believed could lead him to gold. This move was not sanctioned by Columbus, and he was angry that Pinzon had taken this step without permission. There was not much he could do about it, so Columbus continued east towards the island of Hispaniola, today's Haiti and the Dominican Republic. The natives he had aboard grew fearful at this. They said that the people of the island were cannibals, and that they were unable to communicate with them as they spoke another language. A few days later, they arrived in Haiti. Columbus describes a great harbour with beautiful mountains and large trees, which he used to make some repairs to the ship. He also discovered some sort of precious stones, and collected them to be brought back to Spain. It seems that this was only a small amount, however, not the vast riches he was looking for. After sailing a little further along the coast, they encountered the first natives of the island, but these ran away at the sight of the Spaniards. Not long after, they came upon what Columbus calls evidence of a large population, but all the houses they found were empty. Later they discovered an old man, and unable to run away, he was forced to interact with the strange foreigners. They gave him gifts and let him go, no doubt terrified by the experience. The same day they reached an empty village and found a man's decapitated head. Showing some decent anthropological understanding, 
Columbus speculated that it must have belonged to an ancestor of the village's inhabitants. He thought it was probably kept in order to be venerated, as a form of ancestor worship. He then set out with a couple of men to try and find some locals who would be willing to talk to them, but they were unable to find any. Despite the elusiveness of the natives, Columbus was optimistic. He believed that the fertile and welcoming nature of the island, along with the size of the villages he'd come across, suggested that the population of the island was probably much larger and more advanced than those he'd encountered so far. He also saw extensive cultivation being practiced, another sign of civilization. He took this as a sign that he was getting closer to either Japan or China. When he made his way back to the boats, he suddenly found himself surrounded by a large group of natives. Finally, they wanted to talk. Their leader gave a speech, which Columbus took to be a welcome, but one of the locals they had taken from the previous islands warned them that they intended to attack the Spanish. In the end, the standoff was ended peacefully, and they exchanged some items with the natives. Despite this, subsequent encounters still ended with the local inhabitants fleeing at the sight of the Spanish. Columbus resorted to kidnapping a woman in order to show her that they meant no harm. They took her back to their ship and gave her gifts before letting her go. There is definitely something vaguely comical about forcibly taking someone against their will in order to try and make friends with them. Despite their benevolent intentions with this woman, Columbus does excitably note in his journals that she had a gold nose stud. The next day they discovered a village, which was said to have over a thousand homes and three thousand inhabitants. At last they were making some progress. Finally Columbus had a meeting with a local king, and the king provided them with gold. He also explained that his people believed that the Spanish had come from the supernatural world, and that they were some kind of spirits. This in part explained their fear. Several more encounters followed, and the Spanish continued to trade with the locals. Columbus decided to create a rule that something must always be traded in return for gold. He had become concerned that the locals were, in his own words, so simple and the Spanish so greedy that his men were taking advantage of them by accepting gold with nothing in return. That said, his idea of fair trade was to exchange a bead or a piece of glass for gold. Now there are a few interesting things at play here if we want to determine the fairness of these trades. Columbus assumed that the locals were simple for freely handing over gold and that the Spanish were taking advantage of them. This was certainly true in the minds of the Spanish. They were taking advantage in order to enrich themselves. To the locals, however, this may have been a fair trade. Gold may have been a valuable commodity in the old world, but an object, even gold, only has as much value as humans decide to give it. The native Haitians did not value gold in the same way, and so they did not mind parting with it. The beads which the Spanish gave them in return had little value to them, but to the natives, these were strange, novel, new things which had never been seen before. This made them desirable. It made them valuable. It's conceivable that one of these beads or bits of glass could then be traded with other locals, and having come from these strange new spirit people, they would have probably had great value. As I said, things are only as valuable as people believe they are. Now don't take this as some kind of justification or apology for European actions during the colonial era. 
As I said, the Spanish believed they were taking advantage. And of course, when they actually conquered everything, they certainly were. We also cannot say for sure how the natives saw these transactions. In bringing this up, however, I just want to make you aware that things are not always as simple as they seem. Even the concept of fair trade, taking advantage and ripping people off, will vary between cultures. Over the next few days, all the local chiefs came to visit Columbus, and he determined that there may have been large amounts of gold in the interior of the island. One local man said that some of this gold could be found at a place called Sivao. Still convinced that they were in Asia, and as the name by which they knew Japan was Sipango, Columbus decided that these must be one and the same, that Japan was not only nearby, but a place where gold could be found. They continued following the north coast of the island eastward, until disaster struck. It was Christmas Day, and Columbus decided to take a rest in his cabin. The sailor assigned to steer the Santa Maria, perhaps feeling relaxed thanks to the holiday, decided to take a sleep as well. This was explicitly against the rules that Columbus had set, and a young boy was left to manage the tiller. The inexperienced youth was unable to manage the ship, and they crashed into a reef. It soon became clear that the ship was wrecked. One of the local caciques, who they had met earlier, came to their aid, and with his canoes he ferried all of the Spaniards stuffed ashore. Columbus remarked that not a needle went missing, and that this reflected on the good and gentle nature of the Tainos. They would, he believed, make excellent subjects of the Spanish king and queen, and should be easily converted to Christianity. Columbus spent the next few days with the cacique, and established good relations with him. Columbus showed him how to use a crossbow, which the cacique was impressed by. The cacique then told Columbus of how the fierce Caribs threatened his people. As thanks for their help with the ship, Columbus promised that the Spanish monarchy would come to their aid against the Caribs, and then demonstrated the shooting of a cannon. This terrified the Tainos, and they bought Columbus more gold. Of course, this pleased him, and he decided that the shipwreck must have been a sign from God. It had resulted in more gold, better relations with the local, and had happened on Christmas Day. What clearer sign could there be than that? God must have willed it. He decided to found a settlement there and then, the first colony in the Americas. He called it La Navidad. In English this translates to nativity, or Christmas, because the shipwreck happened on Christmas Day. There he ordered the building of a fort, complete with tower. Not that he thought that these fortifications would be too needed. He didn't think that the settlement would face much threat from the locals. He believed that he could easily conquer the whole island with only the men he had with him. Part of his reasoning, however, was that building these fortifications would impress the locals and make them more likely to obey the will of the Spanish. He left behind 39 people in his new settlement and told them that he would return with more people and provisions on his next expedition. Now I'm sure that Columbus was sincere in his belief that God had put them there in order to found a settlement, but it is convenient that this was God's will, considering that there was now one less ship, the largest one no less, to take people back across the Atlantic. Leaving people there solved the problem of overcrowding. It also forced the Spanish monarchy 
to sanction another voyage, as he had to return to look after his settlement. Having decided to found this colony, Columbus's attention started to turn back to Spain. He wanted to get back and report his findings to the king and queen, and being down to just one boat, the Pinta not having yet returned, he thought that further exploration with one ship might be dangerous. Having heard no news about the Pinta, he set off towards home, and as luck would have it, ran into the other ship a few days later. Pinzon and his crew had explored some islands to the north of Haiti, but apart from a modest amount of gold, they had not found much of interest to report. Columbus was not impressed. Out here, far from home, there was not much he could do, however, so he let the insubordination go more or less unpunished. Perhaps the fact that there were two more Pinzons around tied his hands further. He determined to get back to Spain quickly, so that he could rid himself of what he calls this evil company. They stopped further down the coast and came across some locals dressed in a different way to those they'd previously met, and armed with bows and arrows. Columbus speculates that these may have been the fearsome Caribs, which he'd been told about. We run sure as to whether they really were Caribs, or if they were just another group of Tainos. After talking and trading, something happened, and the interaction turned into a fight. The islanders came off worse, with a couple being injured, while the Spanish were unharmed. After that, they continued east out onto the open sea on their way back to Spain. About halfway back, they ran into trouble, when a storm started. The weather was so bad that Columbus grew convinced that they would not survive. The Pinta was again separated from Columbus on the Niña, this time owing to the storm and not by choice. It would end up in Galicia, northern Spain, and coincidentally ended up reaching Palos de la Frontera the same day as Columbus. The Niña eventually came ashore at the Azores, a small collection of Portuguese islands in the middle of the Atlantic. After reaching land, there was much celebration and praying. The Portuguese governor of the island, however, had other ideas. He ordered the crew arrested, although not Columbus, believing them to be pirates. Columbus was outraged by this and attempted to have them released. The governor ignored him, and Columbus started to think that maybe war had broken out between Portugal and Spain while he was away. Having been cut off from news, this was not entirely inconceivable. After a couple of days, and for reasons not entirely clear, the governor relented and released Columbus's crew. They continued onwards, but as they first sighted Europe, another storm hit. They had reached Lisbon, the Portuguese capital, and thanks to the severity of the storm, they were forced to dock there. Now this was risky, as their experience in the Azores had proved. They had no idea how the Spanish king would receive them, as they were working for their rivals. Furthermore, he was now in possession of extremely sensitive information, that land could be reached across the Atlantic. Ferdinand and Isabella would not be best pleased if this knowledge reached their rival before them. Having no choice, however, thanks to the storm, he sent a letter to the Portuguese king, and despite being so close to home, he prepared to deal with this new, potentially serious problem. Would the Portuguese king let them go at all? After all, when they'd been in the Canaries, there had been rumours that he was trying to kidnap Columbus and prevent his expedition. Would he force Columbus to reveal all that he'd discovered? 
and then rushed to take advantage of it before Columbus's official sponsors, the Spanish Crown, could. Next time we'll see what happened in Lisbon and explore Columbus's second voyage to the Americas. Until then, thanks for listening. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.